0: Hello and welcome to the LCN Legal podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. As always, our focus is on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, we talk again to LCN Legal's co-founder, Paul Sutton, about a very fundamental question, how to examine your intercompany agreements to make sure that they are audit ready. We use a simple process for this called the ICA Health Check, which Paul describes during the episode. We hope you find it thought provoking and useful. Hello, uh, I'm here with Paul Sutton, who probably needs no introduction to most of you, but he's the co-founder of uh, LCN Legal. And like everyone there, he's passionate about helping uh, multinational groups to improve their legal compliance. And in particular, the quality of their documentation and the intercompany agreements. Now, Today we're gonna to talk particularly about uh, how to health check your intercompany agreements. And Paul, let's start with the, with the big picture. Why do groups need to health check their ICAs? What is the fundamental aim here?
1: Thanks Paul. Yes, so, so, so really what we're looking at is alignment between the, the agreements, the intercompany agreements on the one hand, and the transfer pricing policies on the other. So if we're thinking about transactions that are happening within the group, a particular group in real time right now so this this current year maybe it's uh, supply of services r&d services whatever it is um, so we're looking ahead at the point in time when those transactions um, and, and that year is going to be audited by the relevant tax authorities at either end of the transaction so that could be in four five six years time and the question is are the agreements going to support the transfer pricing and tax documentation or are they going to contradict and undermine that documentation so that's that's the basic aim here is is agreements which um support the tax readiness of the group and enable the group to respond to those tax queries quickly decisively accurately and that's really what we're trying to do here
0: and what sorts of groups are we talking about what sort of groups is the health check relevant for
1: um well it's it's relevant for Any group, obviously the size of the group, you know, the the bigger they are, the more likely they are to be subject to um, detailed tax audits. Um, So one of the things that that we hear time and time again when we attend and contribute to transfer pricing conferences is that for the larger corporates, they can expect to be audited on everything. (laughs) And therefore, you know, irrespective of their industry, what sector they're in, they really just need to make sure that they are as compliant as they can be, as strong as they can be, and that is a basic tax governance requirement. Clearly, the smaller the group is in terms of revenue, the less likely it is potentially to be um, on the radar, as as it were, as regards tax audits. Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's there's no scale of, of group, uh, which means that they're, they're safe. So what we're saying is, it's, it's on a sensible risk-based approach. So groups are going to need to look at their own situation to see, well, how uh, how much of a risk is transfer pricing and tax compliance generally? How painful is it likely to be if they get things wrong? And therefore, how much effort do they need to devote to the whole package, including intercompany agreements?
0: And to pick up on that point, I mean, how painful is it likely to be if they get things wrong? I mean, if you get it like a little bit wrong or totally totally wrong perhaps you know it does, does it really matter that much
1: well um I, I guess what we can what we can look at is our recent experience from cases um so-called cases involving transfer pricing disputes where agreements were a key factor and in some cases a decisive factor in in the outcome so we can look at cases like um coca-cola where uh the 2020 US tax courts decision um, was extremely critical of their intercompany agreements and there was a direct contradiction between what the transfer pricing policies were saying in relation to the relevant periods and what the agreements said, Um, and the US tax court was saying sorry guys it's a one-way street. You don't get to disavow your own agreements. Um, and because the agreements were so directly in contradiction to their TP policies, it contributed to what was a very significant um, tax position for them, um, which I, I believe the latest estimate is about $12 billion of additional tax that, that was payable. Um, unless they can ultimately overturn that that decision. And then we've got other examples of agreements or or lack of agreements, for example, the ASPRO case, also in the US, where on its face, it was a simple management charge. um, But because no agreements were available at all, um, the group was not able to demonstrate that the relevant payments were in the nature of a payment for services at all, as opposed to being a dividend, and therefore the tax deduction was was denied. So you know we're we're not saying that the smallest issue in the agreements can cause a huge problem, but on the basics, um, what's what's clear across the board is that unless there's substantial alignments, um, the quality, the dependability of the TP documents is is seriously compromised.
0: And I think we've also seen in some of those some of those cases, haven't we, that them, the taxpayer, after they've been um, investigated, after the investigation has begun, has then tried to produce documents after the fact, uh, and that hasn't worked.
1: Exactly, so so yeah, the, the ASPRO case um, is an example of that. Another one is, is the decision of the Spanish national courts last year, where the taxpayer claimed that the agreements had been lost, produced um, a, an extensive expert report Attempting to reconstruct the transaction, but that evidence was basically rejected as being unreliable. So um, I I would say, yeah, it's it's true. There's there's really limited opportunities here to rewrite history.
0: So let's talk a bit more about the health check process itself. And I know that's something that um, uh, a motto that you very much live by is start with the end in mind. So, what is the end that's required here? you know, what, in essence, does an effective ICA look like?
1: Um, so, So the overall standard here that we're looking at is a legal agreement that clearly expresses the commerciality of the arrangement, Ideally, in a way that lay people can easily understand. So one of the things that we often come across is incredibly long agreements, especially, I'm afraid, when it comes to US corporates, maybe US lawyers are a breed apart when it comes to love of words. So we see 70 or 80 page or longer agreements where they may well have got the substance right. But it's so long that it's, it doesn't tick the box of having that immediate effect of demonstrating alignment between the agreement and, and, the, uh, and the TP policies. So as I said, what we're looking to do is encapsulate the commerciality of the arrangements as succinctly as possible, ideally in as plain language as possible. Um, and in a way that is genuinely legally binding. So that means it does need to have legal certainty. So it does need to be an agreement with substance, one that the directors of the relevant entities can actually read, understand, consider, and and properly approve in the exercise of their discretions.
0: Okay. So let's get to the heart of it then. What um, does a typical health check uh, involve?
1: So... so um, I would say there's there's no single way to do this kind of thing. Um, within LCN Legal, we tend to talk about a framework that we use, which is just one way of um, applying a consistent approach. And we talk about four key areas of alignment. Um, plus there's the fifth category, the, the sort of general fitness for purpose category. So, so that's, that's what we're generally looking at when we do health check reports. Um, so those four key areas are Number one, the delineation of the transaction, in other words, just the high-level description, who does what, what are the functions involved? So obviously that needs to align with with the TP policies. Number two is risk allocation. So we all know that allocation of risk is a critical consideration in everyday life when we think about insurance policies and who we buy our used cars or new cars from and, and so on. So contractual allocation of risk That needs to align with the statements in the TP policies. That's the second area. Third key area is ownership of IP or intangible assets. This is one of the key things that Coca-Cola fell down on. So it was the ownership of marketing intangibles that there was that fundamental conflict between the legal terms and the TP policies. And then the final um, fourth area of alignment is pricing. So just the fundamentals of is the pricing clause In the agreement, one which has legal certainty clearly expresses the pricing of the arrangement in a way that is absolutely aligned with the TP policy. So so those those are the four key areas of alignment. The fifth category, as I mentioned, is really the everything else. So is is the agreement fit for purpose? Is it um, of a suitable length? (laughs) So that can rule out a lot of agreements. Um, Is it expressed in, in legally binding terms? Um, and is is it generally appropriate and does it include um, uh, different language translations as, as needed?
0: And, uh, you know, of the four key areas, is there one that you think is particularly complex or particularly likely to have problems contained within it? I mean, you mentioned that risk is something which applies to all of us in all of our everyday lives. Is that the area where you think you're probably more likely to find problems? Um, I would say actually there's there's no one key
1: area that that stands out as being more important than the others, but I, I, I do agree risk allocation is something that we see over and over again when we review agreements, even for very large corporates, um, where there may be a direct contra- contradiction between the TP analysis um, and the agreements, and I think one of the reasons for that is that when you take an example such as a distribution agreement, You know, if you go to a typical in-house legal function and say, hey, can you give us a, a, an example of a distribution agreement? Then naturally they will probably pull off a third party agreement that they've got, or maybe they'll go to what, one of the uh, sort of publicly available sources, whether it's Thomson Royce or LexisNexis or whatever. And a typical distribution agreements from that perspective will often have a risk allocation that is completely the opposite of what the TP policies imply or actually say. So I'd I'd say that area of risk allocation, especially for reseller or distribution arrangements, is is, is often a critical thing.
0: And Ilse and Legal have obviously been uh, going through this process for many multinationals for many years, and have you, Do you tend to see the same, same sorts of problems cropping up again and again? Are there sort of typical common problems that occur much more often?
1: Um, so I would say, yeah, that area of, of risk allocation. Um, I would say on the pricing clauses, if you roll back to what I would refer to as, as the bad old days of, of tax advice and tax planning. So including from my own experience, when I was within one of the big four, firms in, in the 2000s. Yeah. This was the era, era when you know tax planning, tax advisors were like the masters of the universe. It was all about um, implementing sophisticated schemes to get a tax advantage. Um, and some of those arrangements were extremely artificial. Um, and at that stage, very often the substance, including the substance, was a poor relation in, in the or as it was a long way down the list of considerations when setting up these arrangements. And I think in, in those bad old days, you often came across the idea, well, if you don't have an agreement at all, you can't get it wrong. Or if you leave the clauses, especially the pricing clauses, as vague as possible, then it will never be wrong. Um, and things have moved on along a lot since then. So, so all, the, all the cases that we've we've mentioned, you know, it's all about substance, it's all about genuine commerciality and you can't have genuine commerciality if you have a classic one-liner about pricing saying the price payable for the goods will be such amount as the parties consider from time to time to be arm's length. You know, That kind of general fudge yeah. just doesn't work anymore and, and I think that's just part of the evolution of the tax world generally um, and, and something that we need to uh, help with.
0: Very interesting, you've given us a fantastic uh, overview and quite a detailed uh, look into the health check process there and uh, w- what multinationals and their TP advisors ca- can do to um, uh, reduce risk and um, and uh, make their businesses, uh, their arrangements more efficient. Um, if there's one key message that you'd like our, our listeners to take away, uh,
1: what would that be? Um, so, so I'm I'm going to break the rule and give you two rather than one. <laughs> the, 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 the first thing is going back to that, that point about tax audit ready. So it's a verification process. So what you're doing, what I'd really encourage everyone to, to think about, especially transfer pricing professionals, is what statements are they expecting to make in their TP filings about that transaction? So allocation of risk, guaranteed returns. And then the question is, are those statements true or not? So, can they actually be verified by reference to the express provisions of the agreement? So, that's that's it's that basic verification process. It's a bit like doing an IPO where every statement in the prospectus needs to be backed up by factual information. So, that, that's that's the mindset. Um, and, and that's 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 really at the core of what we're trying to do. Second thing is, I, I would say, um, it's all very much common sense. You know, this is not legal mumbo-jumbo or, or or abstract analysis. If you pick up the agreement and you can't understand it, it's probably wrong because probably no one else can understand it either. No one has bothered to read it. And the chances of actually being helpful in an audit are pretty much zero. So, you know, to a large extent, um, you can do a lot of this health check review yourself just from a common perspe- common sense perspective. Does it make sense? Does it reflect the commerciality of an arrangement that you would approve if you were a director at either end of the transaction? If not, that's the time to wave the red flag and say, let's get this fixed.
0: Thank you very much, Paul. That's been absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure our listeners have found it very interesting and thought-provoking as well. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LCN Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, lcnlegal.com, and you'll also find more information about the issues discussed in this episode and much else besides. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the LCN Legal Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.